Thank you, brothers, for serving God's people. You know what just came to my mind when Drew was praying? We just uh, observed the Lord's Supper, and the the latest uh, church shooting was in White Settlement. Do I have that correctly? Which is right next to Fort Worth. And, you know, the shooter started to shoot right after the Lord's Supper was passed. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? It was a Church of Christ uh, church. And so could we just take a few moments in prayer and pray for that church right now? The, the headlines and the reporters have all come and gone, but the pain of that has not left that church yet, right? So take a few moments. Let's pray for that church. It's pastors. Father, would you build this church so that should a tragedy like that occur in this church, we would have such a grounding in you and such a knowledge of your power, your grace, and your sovereignty that we would sustain and maintain faith in the midst of tragedy like that. We pray for that church, its leaders, ask that you have mercy upon her and them. And do what you do, God. Bring beauty out of ashes. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you would, please get a Bible. Turn to Acts. I think we're in Acts 8. Acts chapter 8. Everybody doing okay? Everybody doing okay? You okay? Relatively speaking? Last week we had Marquis Laughlin dramatically recite Acts 1 through 9, I believe. How many of you were here? Wasn't that a good time together? Can you imagine a guy who's memorized that much of Scripture? Oh, and not only that, but the Gospel of John, the book of the Revelation, the book of Daniel, Ecclesiastes, Genesis 1 through uh, 22, and who knows? I mean, just an amazing talent, amazing. It was a wonderful time in God's presence. And he gave us Acts after he gave Acts uh, 1 through 9 to us, do you remember what he said about the Great Commission? You might remember that. He cited a Barna Research Project, and when 1,000 Christian churchgoers were asked if they had previously heard of the Great Commission, half of the U.S. churchgoers, 51%, say they do not know this term. Do uh, Do we have that up there? Yeah, there it is. Look at that. No. They've never heard of, they don't know the term, the Great Commission. Or, yes, I've heard the term, but I can't recall exactly the meaning. 25%, what's it, 51 plus 25, what is that? Uh, 76% either don't know the term, or maybe, yeah, I know the term, but what is it exactly? (laughs) Now, polls come and go, and it's just, you know, 1,000 U.S. churchgoers, but, I mean, is this really reflective of Americans, I mean, American churchgoers, 76%. We got a question mark on the Great Commission. 
How many of you know, well, first of all, it, it makes me want to ask these thousand churchgoers, where are you going to church? <laughs> it makes me want to ask those thousand pastors of the thousand churchgoers, what are you guys doing? <laughs> what are you doing? So as I begin, may I ask all Christians that can hear me, have you ever heard of the Great Commission? Raise your hand. Okay. And do you know what that means? Raise your hand. Okay. Wonderful. How many of you do, don't like raising your hands because you're Baptist? Okay. Yes, I see you in the back. <laughs> right. This, this is the marching order. This is why we exist as a church. There are two fundamental things that all of us, whether pagans or believers, have to answer in our lives. Number one, who am I? Number two, why am I here? One speaks to your identity. The second one speaks to your purpose in life. Can you answer that, beloved? And is your answer cemented and centered in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Wow. Praise the Lord. Now, there are certain characteristics of the modern mind that I want to show you up on the screen. There's four of them. You might want to write these down because we all, we all can't help but be influenced by these very important ideas, okay? We're on this side of the Enlightenment, so we can't help but be centered on individualism. We live in a society that values skepticism, right? You need to have an open mind. Have an open mind. Have an open mind, well, do you realize that having an open mind can be the most closed mind of all if it's always continually open? You all realize that? The reason to have an open mind is to look at the evidence and close your mind on certain issues, right? So, but it, we, we value skepticism in our, in our country. Uh, also, what is running afoot in the modern mind is the questioning of authority, right? The questioning of authority, whether it's civil government, whether it's church leaders, whether it's the church itself, whether it's the husband in the home, right? The questioning of authority. And then number four, there's a certain doubting of the supernatural or there's a rejection of the supernatural. All we are is a bunch of bag of stardust. That's what a human is. <laughs> bag of bones, bag of stardust, right? There is no spiritual stuff like angels and demons or God, okay? Just that which is materialism, a closed universe. That is running rampant in the schools, even in the seminaries, and in our minds. This is what we, we're battling. So our passage today is going to really challenge those four things. Okay? This passage, and really much of the Bible, is going to really challenge those four things. So today I have five evidences of a church with 2020 vision. All right, I like the year 2020. I'm going to be using that a lot. We might be get tired of it, but we want to see clearly. 2020 vision, all right? And my purpose is so that we might apply these five evidences in our lives as the Lord leads us. So uh, before I continue, let me just give you a heads up on, on uh, what you're about to hear. If we could go to that slide. What you're about to hear is the preaching of God's word in its literary and historical context. And then with the strength that God supplies, I'm going to try to illustrate these five evidences and then apply them to contemporary issues in our day, okay? That's what I'm going to try to do with the help of God. And when I say contemporary issues, that means everything is on the table, okay? Everything's on the table as it relates to what's going on in our world today. So let's pray and let's get busy with the word, amen? Here we go. 
Father, as we dive in, come, come and anoint every hearer of your word. Come, don't let the enemy come and snatch the word away, but plant it deeply in our souls and in our minds and our hearts and bring healing to us individually and collectively. Bring healing to your bride. Bless her, strengthen her. Be the lifter up of her head, I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So my task today is to uh, do all of uh, Acts chapter 8. I'm seeing um, 40 verses, so I'm not going to stand and like read the whole entire chapter, okay? We have weeping and wailing just at the thought of that right now, so we won't do that, but uh, we're just going to cruise along, okay? So here's number one. I got five evidences. God uses evil things against his people to spread his word. Boom. God uses evil things against his people to spread his word. Now, I will read verses one through four. Would you look at it with me? Saul was hearty. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. Who, who was just put to death? Stephen. He does an Old Testament history, an overview, and he names the, one of the top uh, principalities, if you would, dark forces of evil. His name's Moloch, and they kill him. They kill him. And on that day, the Bible says, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had scattered went about what? Preaching the word. Now, in verses 1 through 4, we're told a great persecution began against the church, where? In Jerusalem. But did you notice where the people of God were scattered to? Last phrase of verse 2 tells us, Judea and Samaria. Now, that's interesting. That is interesting. How is that interesting? When was the last time you heard the phrase Judea and Samaria in the book of Acts? Anybody want to take a shot at that? We're in Acts chapter 8. The first time you hear that phrase, Judea and Samaria, goes all the way back to Acts chapter 1, and it's found on the lips of Jesus Christ himself. You may recall, you may recall what he said. It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. There it is, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Now, the first thing we should realize is that God is king of his commands. He's king of his commands. Verse 8 says, you will receive power. You shall be my witnesses in all of Judea and Samaria. Now, does that sound like a God who has to have people's permission in order to work in their lives? Doesn't sound like it to me. Would you guys like to vote on this before I pronounce what I'm going to do in your life? You know, okay. No. Beloved, God upholds the entire universe by the word of his power. That includes everyone. And he does not need permission from people that would cease to exist were it not for his mere pleasure. He does not need permission. I'm glad God didn't wait for me to give permission before he worked in my life because guess what? He'd never get it. He saves us from ourselves, beloved. He overwhelms us and overcomes us and does a miracle in us. He causes us to be born again. 
Now think of how rude that is for people who say that man's will is the determining factor apart from God. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. You shall be my witnesses and so forth, right? Now do you remember what I said about how every ministry will eventually turn bad unless the leaders fix it? You remember that? What was that, Acts 6? Remember that? The good ministry of feeding uh, poor widows went bad. The Greek, the Hellenistic widows were being overlooked. You remember that? Well, I think that is setting in the entire church in Jerusalem. But it's not just uh, Hellenistic widows. It's Judea and Samaria. Here we are in Acts 8, and we don't see an account of any missionary outreaches to Judea and Samaria. Do you see that in Acts 1 through 7? You don't see that, do you? No. Nope. Jesus said there would be uh, witnesses in Judea and Samaria. Back in Acts 8, uh, Acts 1, here we are in Acts 8. Hello? Where's the ministry? Where's the witnessing in Judea and Samaria? Could it be that even in the lives of the apostles that they too are prone to live in the holy huddle? Us four and no more to the glory of God? The frozen chosen? To live in the church bubble and define the mission on their own terms, meaning the comfort of the bubble of Jerusalem. In Acts, the people were overlooking Greek widows. Up until Acts 8, I believe the church and its leaders were overlooking Judea and Samaria. So, how does God fix that? How does God fix that? Nothing like some persecution to get God's people going. That's what happens. What does that mean for us? Beloved, one of God's purposes for allowing evil things to occur in your life, listen, listen, is so that you would center your life on his word. He's getting your attention. Not on anything else, not on anyone else, on his word. And so may I ask you, are you doing that? In the busy, 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 are you centering your life on the word of God? Another reason why God allows evil things to happen in our lives is so that we would spread his word to others. Right As they were, yeah, I'm out of here. Got to get out of Jerusalem. Don't want to be like Stephen. <laughs> right? Don't want to be like Stephen. I'm out of here. I hear the voice of the Lord calling me to another area. <laughs> yeah? And as they're going about, they're sharing the word of God. They're preaching the word of God. Are we doing that as we go about, as we bump along this thing called life? Are we looking for opportunities? Are we praying for opportunities? God, give me an opportunity to share, right? This is very important. This is what God does. He allows evil things to happen in his own people's lives to fulfill his mission to spread his word. Number two, God uses outstanding servants to bring deliverance. Look at verse five. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice. By the way, that's how they come out when Jesus is around, with a loud voice. I wonder what that sounded like. Kind of eerie. So this, this guy, Philip, he's an interesting character. He's an outstanding servant. He's like an apostle, but he's not an apostle. He's kind of like an Old Testament prophet, but not really. 
He's performing these signs and wonders. He's preaching. Now uh, we see deliverance ministry happening. So when I say God's outstanding members, uh, servants rather, they bring deliverance, we're talking about deliverance from demons, okay? So deliverance from demons. Now let me back up for a minute. Let's go to the next slide. Do we have that? Just a reminder as it relates to uh, uh, stranger things, or the, the, the DC comics or the Walking Dead, right? All these blockbuster movies, right? What do they have in common? They're all stealing from the Bible, okay? The Bible is the world's greatest supernatural story, supernatural uh, saga, supernatural epic, okay? So there's evil and chaos, there's demigods, meaning lesser deities or mortals raised to divine rank. There are hybrids in the stories, the offspring of a god and mortals. There are the epic battles and the ultimate triumph of good over evil, right? Next slide. Yeah, who's the guy on the left? Anybody want to take a shot at that? I know David McGregor would know the answer to this. Zeus, who's the guy on the, the right? He's the Roman counterpart to Zeus, which is what? Jupiter, right? So I throw these up, whether it's modern movie blockbuster or the most famous of ancient stories, the Greek gods, the Roman gods, where do you think they get their ideas from? They're stealing from the Bible. (laughs) And they're smart to do so. The world's greatest blockbuster supernatural thriller is the Bible. Now, remember how I said earlier that the modern mind either doubts or rejects the supernatural things? There, here are five modern wrong understandings of exorcism, okay? Throw that up on the, on the uh, uh, screen for them, okay? So here's what like really smart people say about this deliverance ministry of Jesus and the deliverance ministry of Philip. What's really happening here is exorcism is a metaphor of political oppression, okay? So not really demons, it's a metaphor. And with this view, demons symbolize Jesus' war of resistance against the economic and political oppression of Rome. Secondly, no, no, they're, they're not really demons. Exorcism was simply Jesus being Jewish. Historically, Jesus was like any other Jewish miracle worker of his day. His activities can be compared with other Jewish miracle workers based in Galilee. Oh, no, no, it's not really demons. Exorcism is, is uh, this metaphor for social reintegration. It's a symbol of integrating the outcast back into society or the worshiping community. Or number four, no, no, exorcism isn't really about demons. Exorcism is a, a metaphor or a sign for a mental disorder, and they're like really simple people back then. They're not modern like this with our science, and what was happening was it's a mental health issue. And so this, this idea says that Jesus was a, physi- a physician before his time or a psychiatrist before his time. He's not dealing with demons. He's dealing with people who have mental disorders in a time when they did not know about psychosomatic mental illness. And then finally, no, no, no not really demons. Exorcism is a, a, a symbol or a sign of salvation itself. So with this idea, these demonic encounters are actually symbolic stories of Jesus' salvation from evil and its profound effects. They're not really about demons. Move along, citizen, move along. Nothing to see here. There's a big problem with all of those views. They turn Jesus' deliverance ministry 
and that of his apostles and outstanding servants like Philip into something other than what it is, which is delivering people from hostile demonic control, right? So if exorcism is not a metaphor of political oppression or economic oppression or Jesus being Jewish or mental disorder or symbolic of salvation, then what is exorcism? What is it? Well, first of all, not all evil spirits are created equal. <laughs> all right? We tend to take the vocabulary of the Bible and like smash all of the evil powers into one term. Like, well, they're all demons. Okay? That's not accurate. When you study the Bible and the vocabulary about evil powers, there's a whole list of rank and file and ability and powers. And consider... Um, uh, uh, Rodney, what was your what's your uh, your uh, rank, Lieutenant Colonel, full bird Colonel, right? Colonel, is that higher than a private? Oh yeah. So consider a demon like a private, right? Low level uh, being. Now this is interesting to me. What is the evil spirit called in verse seven? What is the evil spirit called in verse seven? For in the case of many who had what kind of spirits? Hmm, that's interesting. Why is it called unclean? Did the spirit not use enough hand sanitizer? Right? How is it that a spirit isn't, thank you for laughing, by the way, you in the back, thank you. Uh, the word, think of the word unclean from a Jewish perspective. It is a uniquely Jewish uh, uh, temple concept, a temple idea. So where do we get the understanding of what is unclean? If, with it being a temple concept or a temple word. Where would we go in the Bible to learn about the temple holiness code and what constitutes what's clean and unclean? You go to the book of what? Leviticus. Leviticus. Now, some people may read Leviticus to help cure insomnia, and I understand that, but God gave it to us for more than that, okay? When you read Leviticus, not to go to sleep, but when you read Leviticus to learn about what makes something unclean, guess what you find? You will find something is unclean when it is mixed. When it's mixed. You ever read that verse in Leviticus that like God doesn't like you wearing mixed clothing, mixed cloth? Right? Interesting. Now that is really interesting when you look at theories on what a demon actually is. So I'll bring those up to you. The next slide, here are the four main theories on what a demon is. You may have heard of them, you may have not. I'm just giving you what they are in the 2000 history of the church, okay? So if you grew up under preaching that didn't study this in the 2000 year history of the church, this might be new to you. One, what's a demon? Spirits of the human dead that had a really bad unjust life and now they're seeking retribution. That's one theory. What do y'all think? Thumbs up, thumbs down. I'm thumbs down. Number two, Demons are spirits of dead, wicked people. Okay? Thumbs up, thumbs down. I'm going thumbs down on that one. By the way, the first one, uh, let's see if I can remember who was the, um, who was that first one? I had it in my notes. Can't remember number one, but Josephus, he promoted number two. Number three, angels that rebelled with the devil. That came from a church uh, uh, father named Origen. Okay? And probably most people would go with that. But guess what the most popular view on what a demon is? Number four, demons are the spirits of dead giants. <laughs> That's the most popular. And 
that is based on ancient Jewish sources, that's based on rabbis, that's based on many of the early church fathers, and I'm here to argue that there's indication actually of this in the Bible as well. All right? For example, uh, Justin Martyr, I think we've got a slide on him. He, he was a significant early church father. This is what he said. The angels were captivated by love of women and engendered children who are called demons. There you go. So where in the Bible is there any evidence of this? Next slide. If you know the big story of the Old Testament, you know exactly where this is coming from. Right? Let, me, let me give you uh, an example. Who's the most famous giant in the Bible? Goliath. What's a giant? Guy had, who had some serious testosterone going up when, you know, when he was in puberty. Okay. What's a giant according to the Bible? Where do giants come from? Well, it comes from the Genesis 6 event where it says the sons of God came down and cohabitated with women and had the Nephilim, the warriors of old, the great men, the giants. So let's go to the next slide. Goliath is the most famous, but did you know that there are named giants in the Bible other than Goliath? And did you know that there are whole clans of giants in the Bible? Did you all know that? Have you ever heard of Lami? Right? Have you ever heard of Ishbi Benab or Saf or Ahaman and Sheshai and Talmai? They were the sons of uh, Anak or the Anakim. So, I mean, look at this. So, you got the Nephilim in Genesis 6, you got the Rephaim in Genesis 14 5, you got the Anakim, you got the Amorites. There's also an unnamed giant in 1 Chronicles 26. You got the Emim and the Zamzumim or the Zumim who are connected to the Raphim. I'm going to start wrapping up in here. And if you notice on the chart there, it's all what? Scripture, 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 Scripture. Okay? And so what usually happens is, okay, this Genesis 6 stuff is like we're really weird. It's not supernatural commingling or crossing. There's nothing to see here. Let's just keep going nothing to see here keep reading the bible but i'm saying whoa wait a minute this is connected to the great conquest stage right now this is very important because what does god tell joshua to do in the conquest stage something really controversial and you better have an answer to this you modern christian what does he tell them to do he tells joshua in certain places to kill everybody Man, woman, child, kill them all. Sounds like ethnic cleansing to me, Christian. Sounds like a not loving God, Christian. But if you understand, follow closely. If you understand that giants are the result of a cross reading, and it's like really weird, but welcome to the Bible, okay? What God is doing is the killing, the just killing of in incarnate evil and that's a good thing if you haven't figured this out yet God gets rid of evil and evil people when you study hell it's basically a cosmic garbage dump okay so it fits with the narrative the big the big story of the narrative Deuteronomy 2.10 says this if we have this uh, put this on the screen for them the Emim lived there formerly, a people as great 
uh, numerous and tall as the Anakim. Like the Anakim, they are also regarded as Rephaim, but the Moabites call them Imim. It can get really confusing really fast, all of these Eims, right? Now, do you remember what Jesus said, what a demon did after they left their host? What does a demon do, according to Jesus, after they leave someone's body? They go about seeking, right? And what they're seeking for is embodiment, why is that? They're looking for another host. They go to the waterless places, not good there. They're looking for a host. Why would a spirit do that? Well, it makes sense logically that they were once hosted. They were once hosted in a body. By casting out real, unclean spirits, Jesus is communicating that his kingdom has come. Joshua killed the physical giants. Jesus, the new and greater Joshua, ejects their spirits and he said in Mark 5 7 uh, excuse me Luke eleven twenty. but if I cast out demons by the finger of God then the kingdom of God has come upon you I love that imagery if I cast out demons by the what finger of God right little low level private demon right this ain't nothing here bye bye not a big deal little private thing right lower level thing here Perhaps the greatest illustration of exorcism or demonic deliverance is, as a man, is of a man who had not one or two demons, listen, but thousands of them. Cue up the, the, the eerie, scary music. Can you imagine having thousands of spirits within you? This is in Mark 5, and shouting with a loud voice, this man said, and actually it's the demon speaking through him, what business do we have with each other, Jesus, son of the most high? I implore you by God, do not torment me. When you, when you read all of the uh, uh, encounters of, of demons speaking to Jesus, their hair's on fire, man. Have you come before the appointed time? Is this it? What, what's going on? You know, they're on freakout mode, big time. And do you recall what Jesus, Jesus, when you study this in the Greek, Jesus asked the man his name. Commonly it's preached with, uh, he asked the demon its name. Would you study that in the Greek? No, no. He asked the man, what is your name? But the demon in charge of the horde of demons inside the man answered. And when you examine the Greek, that's exactly what's occurring. And do you recall what the demon said when Jesus asked the man his name? <laughs> Quote, my name is Legion, for we are many. That's where most of us would probably go, check please, I'm out of here. <laughs> check please. Can you imagine what that must have sounded like? I don't want to like imitate a demonic voice, but can you imagine what that must have sounded like? My name is Legion, for we are many. This poor man, what society did to him was lock him up in chains and you go live in the cemetery and he would break chains and he would cry out he would shriek during the day and during the night and he would cut himself that's the result of demonic control you're struggling with cutting in your life that's spiritual oppression happening to you beloved you have friends that are cutting it's a sign of demonic torment okay Jesus sends them into the pigs I have a whole bunch of reasons why he does that, but my time is flying by. Do you remember how many pigs? It's actually stated how many pigs? 2,000. Now, another reason why I brought him into this Acts passage is because the story of that man, the Gadarene demoniac, 
foreshadows the mission to the Gentiles that would begin in full force with the conversion of Saul, who's going to be Paul, and the ministry of Peter to Cornelius, which is coming up in Acts 9 and 10. That's Gentile country where the gathering demoniac was. So how do we apply this to our lives? Oh, church, listen to me. I know I threw a lot at you that, that, that was new, and it was all new to me, and then I, I got into it full force, and it's like, whoa. So how do we apply this to our lives? Before we came into the kingdom of God, we were owned and operated by the kingdom of darkness. Amen? Listen to me. The devil was our daddy. The devil was our daddy. And in the grace and mercy of God, he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of his dear son. Praise the name of Jesus. Oh, it's a great salvation we have in Jesus. It's a great salvation we have in Jesus. It goes beyond uh, what we can even imagine or think. praise God we should worship him and serve him and love him and pursue him and sacrifice for him more than we do now and may God give us 2020 vision of not just the kingdom of darkness but God's power over it amen evil will not stand in God's good universe there will be justice in the heavens and on earth number three God uses outstanding servants to bring healing. Oh, I love this. Look at the uh, second half of verse seven. And many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. Many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. Absolutely. And though we might not be physically paralyzed or lame, I gotta say and confess to you, there is much of me spiritually and emotionally that is paralyzed and lame. How about you? Jesus is our healer. Oh, yes, there's paralysis of mind, not just body, but of mind and soul and emotions. There is a lameness that occurs not just to feet, but to minds and spirits and emotions and souls. Here we have in the physical realm, Jesus bringing healing through an outstanding servant named Philip. The question for us today is, does God still work miracles like this? Well, I heard one person say yes anybody else out there what's your opinion does God still work miracles how you answer that is very important I find that people usually answer that question based on their own experience whether they have been themselves physically healed or they know someone that has been physically healed or they'll answer that in the negative well I haven't experienced it and I don't know anyone else has been physically healed therefore Do you really want to base our ideas about God on your experience or lack of it? Right? No, no. It should come from the revelation of God. Unfortunately, it goes with the individualistic characteristics of modern society. Right? So if someone has not experienced a miracle, they say, no, God doesn't do that. No, no. I've told you about our brother, Dr. Craig Keener. He's an outstanding evangelical scholar who has written a not one but two-volume book on, that documents 
all kinds of miracles on all continents of the world from the time of the disciples all the way into the modern period. And he said this two-volume work started as a footnote. Now, that's what scholars will do. (laughs) Started as a footnote, and now that two-volume is 1,238 pages. It's very expensive, so usually church people don't go and buy it, but I bought it. (laughs) And it is wonderfully encouraging, wonderfully encouraging. For example, in that book, he tells of a man named John Polkinghorn, who's both a theologian and a scientist, and he reports of a woman whose left leg was paralyzed from an injury. Her doctors had given up trying to do more for her, indicating that she would remain an invalid for life. And in 1980, she reluctantly and without any positive expectation, meaning faith, agreed to meet with a priest conducting a healing meeting. I'm a Southern Baptist pastor, and I'm giving you this illustration true story of of this happened with a priest and this woman who's an invalid this is what John Polkinghorne scientist slash theologian writes he said from that moment she was able to walk jump and bend down completely without pain her husband an orthopedic charge nurse on examining his wife found that a large ulcer which he had been dressing had also healed spontaneously So God is pleased not just to heal this woman of her lameness, right, but also of this ulcer. Polkinghorn concludes that one may think what one will, but the account, quote, cannot simply be dismissed on a priori grounds as not having possibly happened. Amen, God works miracles. You're alive today, amen. Could it be, this is so convicting to me, Could it be that the reason we don't see more miracles is because we really don't believe God works miracles of healing anymore and therefore we don't pray for them? I mean, yeah, yeah. Does God work miracles? Amen. When was the last time you prayed for a literal miracle to occur? You see? So God is speaking to us today. I think he's wanting us to say, hey, how about throwing up some petitions for miracles up here? I think he wants to encourage us. I heard one preacher uh, pray this and I've been including it in my prayers where he prayed something like God please do not let my prayer life belittle you where our petitions are like this big you know our petitions should be as big as God beloved amen as big as God so be encouraged when you read what God's doing through an outstanding servant it would be a tragedy it would be a tragedy that at the end of the eschaton, well, God, how come we didn't see more miracles? And he looks at you and me and says, you didn't ask. You did not ask. May God give us 2020 vision of his great healing power. Number four. Number four, quickly. God uses outstanding servants to bring salvation. Now, there's two different people from two different backgrounds that come to salvation in verses 9 through 38. And I'm labeling these salvation from those that are, quote, far from God and salvation for those who are, quote, close to God. Let's look at the one of the salvation that what I'm saying is far from God. Pick up in verse nine. Now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. I like how Dr. Luke puts that. Claiming to be someone great. And they all, from the smallest to the greatest, were giving attention to him saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. You can just, remember when, uh, uh, 
Marquis was with us, he did that real good. The great power of God. Dum, 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 dum. Verse 11, they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with what? His magic tricks. He had a deck of 52 cards and he could really razzle-dazzle them. Nope, not that kind of magic. Real magic. Dark power magic. It's real. It's real. Every good church that's faithful to the mission of Jesus Christ has at least one witch in it. You and I are involved in a war, right? You're involved, and we're in it whether we like it or not. Verse 12, but when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God, notice he's preaching about the kingdom, and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, women and, and uh, men and women alike. Verse 13, even Simon himself believed, and what does a genuine believer do after they believe? you need to get baptized so he's being baptized he continued with Philip and he observed signs and great miracles taking place he was constantly amazed so news broke out about this in Jerusalem the apostles hear of it they send Peter and John to pray for them that they would receive the Holy Spirit verse 16 says for he had not fallen upon any of them they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus then they began laying their hands on them and they were receiving the Holy Spirit now this is a critical, interesting, controversial point in the life of the early church. What is going on here? Is this descriptive of the unique beginning of the early church or is this prescriptive? Should this be for all believers at all times? I think Daryl Bach of Dallas Seminary has a good summary. He says, quote, the two stages to the Spirit's appearance are part of the unique historical context. The church practice is breaking new ground so that a confirmation and an affirmation are noted in a way that is not a paradigm for latter practice. So this whole apostles coming and laying on of hands, it's in the unique turning and explosion of the early church. It is descriptive, I believe, not prescriptive for all other believers. Now the former pagan, Simon, he sees what happens with the uh, spirit given through the laying on of hands and he offers some money so he could do the same. I personally think that he's a baby Christian, he's a new Christian who just came out of the dark magical arts and he's running around saying, wow, that's awesome, never done that before, wow, this is awesome, never done that before. So he's like, hey, could I, here's some money, can I do that too? And guess what Peter does? He clouds up and rains all over him. Look at verse 20. May your silver perish with you. <laughs> Gulp. Modern translation. You and your money can go to hell. He's lightning and thundering all up on him. Look at this. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money, you have no part or portion in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that if possible the intention of your heart may be forgiven you for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity let the thunder roll gulp by the way did you did you get uh his response it was basically uh no 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 you pray to the Lord for me that whatever you said doesn't happen to me you you pray very dramatic very dramatic some of you think I can be a little harsh. I am a petunia and a periwinkle compared to Peter, let me tell you. And Paul, for that matter. Oh, yeah. 
So Simon wilts under the heat of Peter here. Pray to the Lord for me yourselves so that nothing of what you may have said may come upon me. So I think this is an example of one who is, quote, far from God, steeped into the occult, coming to Jesus. But there's a second example of salvation, someone who is, quote, close to God. And here I'm saying he's not he's not like in the dark arts he's close to God because in verses 25 to 38 uh, the uh, Ethiopian eunuch who is in charge of the treasure of Ethiopia's queen is in a chariot and the Bible says in our chapter that he'd come to Jerusalem to worship well who is he worshiping who's he worshiping the Jewish God Yahweh our God so he was religious he's on his way back and an angel sent Philip to him and of all places in the entire Bible where is he reading Isaiah 53 are you kidding me he was led as a sheep to slaughter as a lamb before its shears is silent so he does not open his mouth in humiliation his judgment was taken away who will relate his generation for his life is removed from the earth and Philip asks him do you understand what you're reading and the eunuch is like well how can I unless someone guides me and he asks Philip, is this about the prophet Isaiah or someone else? Open door for gospel proclamation. And it says, he preached Jesus to him. So beautiful. After that, he believes and he says, hey, what prevents me from being baptized? Here's some water. Philip's like, let's do this. And he baptizes him. He comes up out of the water and something really weird occurs. You thought what I said about demons were weird? Yeah, this leads me to the final evidence of a church with 2020 vision, and that is God uses outstanding servants in mind-boggling ways. Look at verse 39. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. What does that mean? And the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. Now just pause that right now. He explains the gospel in Jesus. Can I get baptized? Yeah, he gets baptized, comes out out of the water, and the guy that baptism is like, he's gone. But what did he do? Just kept rejoicing, went on his way. Okay, this is great. I met Jesus. I'm alive, amen. Now, from uh, Philip's perspective, you're the one doing the baptizing. You dunk this brother, bring him back up. Where did he go? Luke tells us. Verse 40. Notice the passive language in verse 40. But Philip what? Found himself. <laughs> Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. <laughs> yeah. If you thought what you just heard about demons being spirits of the dead giants is strange, then do not read verse 39 and 40. Many preachers would skip these verses. Uh, by the way, do we have the map of where Azotus is? Okay, do we have that? Oh, no, we got the, okay, we'll, we'll do this one. All right. Anybody know what a teleporter is? This is before the map. There you go. This is a beam me up, not Scotty. This is a spirit beam me up going on right here. All right. By the way, is there a new series called Picard out? How many of you are Star Trek fans, right? And you don't like Star Wars fans? Raise your hand. No. Don't cause division in the church. I'm sorry. Okay. A transporter is supposed to convert a person or object into an energy pattern and then beam it to a target where it is reconverted into matter. I had a, a, a science article that, from a scientist perspective, broke that down. I was going to read that to you, but I'm not going to. 
I have lost people up until now, I really would have lost them with that science article, all right? Philip found himself at Azotus. Let's throw up the map. Let's show where Azotus is. Look at that. It's miles away. <laughs> it's miles away. Look how far Philip was teleported by God. Look, these blockbuster movies have nothing on God and his great grand narrative of salvation. Amen. You're stealing from the Bible. I, don't, I understand why you do it. Make a lot of money doing it. If God can uh, create the universe by speaking, if he can uphold things, all things, by the word of his power, since he alone is the one that keeps atoms together, then this isn't a big deal for him. It's odd, it's strange, it's not normal, but it's just another awe-inspiring act of our great God. Amen. He uses outstanding servants in mind-boggling ways. That is Philip. Now, do we see Philip complaining about not giving God permission to teleport him like this? Did he ask Philip's permission before he worked in his life? You need to know this in the bottom of your heart, beloved. Didn't. It might be too late for some of you adults, but I'm looking at a whole generation of students. They need this kind of a great God to battle what they are facing now and what they will face in the next generation. They need a God like this. They need a supernatural God. They need a sovereign God. Not some wimpy God. May I please have your permission? No, no. This is a great God. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Fear him. Love him. Adore him. Be in awe of him. We could argue, but God isn't there some follow-up discipleship that needs to happen with the Ethiopian eunuch? I mean, hello, did you? He's the treasurer of the queen. He's a money man. More discipleship is needed. Why are you snatching him up and putting him to Azotus? There's a great psalm. It says, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Amen. And his ways are higher than my ways and your ways. Amen. And they're great ways. Now, an outstanding servant also does something else. Rather, uh, in addition to being used in mind-boggling ways from God, it's described in the second half of the last verse for today. As he passed through, what did he do? Kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. Persecution could not stop him from preaching the gospel. Teleportation could not stop him from preaching the gospel. He found himself in this city and he just keeps on preaching Jesus. That's an outstanding servant. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. I don't know about you, but it is with me. Well, actually, I do know about you because you're a lot like me. Too often we get stuck. We get stuck in our views of God. We get stuck in our spiritual life where the things of God become boring or dead to us. A few years ago in Lincoln, Nebraska, there was a most unusual spectacle. Did you all hear about this? an ambitious truck driver attempted to move a large historic church building along Highway 103 with his woefully undersized rig. 
He possibly could have made it, but somewhere along the route, he fell asleep at the wheel and ran off the road. And what do you do when you're veering off the road and you're a truck driver? You just instinctively come back on the road. Well, guess what happened to that large historic church that was on his rig? Slid off. It was during a storm, and literally, the rig tilted to the right. The church slid off the truck and ended up stuck in the mud in the ditch. This preaches all by itself. (laughs) Amen. And all the elders said, Amen. (laughs) The sight of this massive historic church building stuck in the mud in a ditch is disturbingly prophetic. Traffic was backed up for miles in both directions as gawkers came out and drove to see the strange slight, uh, the strange sight. I think there was even a, a local newspaper, and this was the headlines: "Historic church stuck in the mud." <laughs> I can't help but wonder how many churches in America today are in a similar predicament, stuck in the mud. I would say stuck up and stuck in the mud. (laughs) Could that be true of you? Could that be true of us? Don't be quick to say no. Don't be, no, that would never happen here. It will inevitably happen unless we're vigilant. If we're seeing the signs of the times that's happening before us in this crazy messed up world we live in and we're not centering our lives, not just for spiritual health, but centering our lives for mission on the word of God, on the word of God. We can't change that. We've always done it that way before. Those are the words of a dying church, amen. Listen, businesses get stuck in the mud. Relationships get stuck in the mud. Ministries get stuck in the mud. Entire churches get stuck in the mud. Read Galatians. Whole regions of churches lost the gospel. How can we avoid this? God uses evil things against his people to shake them up. You're going to center your life on the word of God or not? Spread his word. He uses outstanding servants to bring healing and deliverance from evil powers. Physical healing to others to bring salvation for those people who are far away from God, steeped in the occult, but also close to God. Those who are religious people, they get saved too. And he uses outstanding servants in mind-boggling ways. Amen. Do you believe? Do you believe the gospel? Let's pray together.